All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you're up there in the pews or anywhere, find if you didn't bring a Bible, find one and open it up with me. We're going to be in 2 Kings today, chapter 4, starting in verse 8. So make your way there. 2 Kings chapter 4, it's in the Old Testament, starting in verse 8. If you haven't been with us over the last month, we are in a sermon series looking at the lives of two Old Testament prophets. We started out with Elijah, and then last week, Mike transitioned us into our second prophet named Elisha. They're back-to-back, and they're very, very interesting lives. Uh, Much could be said about this section of the scriptures, these prophets and these kings and all that you read in this section. But one thing that can never be said about this section of the Bible is that it is boring. Am I right? When you look at these passages, think about the things that we've already looked at. These events, we've already seen ravens miraculously provide food in the middle of the wilderness. We've seen a battle of gods and their prophets at Mount Carmel. We've seen a national manhunt where Elijah is running for his life. We've seen chariots of fire and a whirlwind taking Elijah to heaven. And if that were not enough, we saw last week two she-bears that come from nowhere and take out an entire mob of people making fun of a bald spot. Okay, so much could be said. This is good stuff for a Netflix uh, series at some point. Very, very interesting. The ministries of Elijah and Elisha are full of ups and downs. But this morning, I want us to pull back for a moment. What are these passages really about? Because you can get so caught up in these stories full of supernatural activity and all these different things that we we miss the point of this entire section of Scripture. This section of Scripture is not here to tell us how to be more like Elijah and Elisha. That's not the point. In fact, it's not even to tell us about Elijah and Elisha. This section of scriptures is here to tell us about God. To help us to understand a bigger picture of who he is. You see, Israel was at a point in their history where they desperately needed to know what really is our God like. They were in this time where Ahab and Jezebel had brought in their agenda of religious pluralism. And they were saying, worship many gods. And the Israelites were one foot in the door with the true God and one foot in the door with all these false gods. And they're trying to ask themselves, is there really a God worthy of my trust and my worship? Is there really a God that I'm accountable to? And if there is this God, what is he like? And so God raises up Elijah and Elisha and all of these events happen for the sole purpose of God saying to the nation of Israel, you want to know what the true God is like? If you want to know my power, look at these events and you find out more about me. Each of these events that we're reading about in their lives is like another puzzle piece that the more puzzle pieces we gather together, the more we get this big picture of who the God of Scripture is. And so this morning, while we have already had many puzzle pieces laid, we've seen that God controls nature. We've seen that God can restore the weary. We've seen that God provides, that God can protect. There are two significant new puzzle pieces that are added by this passage today. And so that's what we're going to read. 2 Kings chapter 4 as we continue on reading about the life now of the prophet Elisha. Let's read it together starting in verse 8. This is the word of God. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. 
And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So in essence, what's happening is this Shunammite woman, she sees the hand of God on Elisha. She sees the activity around Elisha. She can see God's presence in Elisha. And she says, we need to support this. And so in an act of incredible generosity and hospitality, she says, let's build an additional room to our house so that he can stay among us. Well, Elisha eventually wants to return the favor. Read verse 11. It says, one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and he rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to her, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Will you have a word spoken on behalf of the king or to the commander of the army? But she responded, I dwell among my own people. So really what he's wanting to do is he says, I've got connections. I know the king. I know the general of the army. I can help you in some way. But she says, look, I'm fine. I've got everything I need with my people right here. God has provided for me. What do you give the person that doesn't need anything? Let's read it. Verse 14. And so he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. She said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Now, we're going to continue this story here in just a moment, but we're going to stop here. Can you imagine the surprise and the joy of this woman when she finds out that Elijah is going to ask God on her behalf and that God is going to provide a child. When she met Elisha, she had no child and no doubt she had given up any hope that that was even a possibility for her in her life. I think it's hard for us in our context to understand the cultural pressure to have children and to have heirs that they had at that time. So this was a big deal. And Elisha comes to her and says, God has seen you. He's seen your generosity. But more than anything, he loves you. He's going to give you this gift of a son. And wouldn't you know it, one year later, she has a baby boy. I don't want you to miss this morning this very simple yet significant puzzle piece as we put this picture together of the God of Scriptures that we find out about our God in this passage. And that is this, that our God is a giver of good gifts. That is a simple yet significant statement that our God is a giver of good gifts. God gives this ordinary woman something that she couldn't have even imagined. And this happens over and over in Scripture. Throughout the Scriptures, you find this motive of barren barren women who are unable to have children, that God works in their life in such a miraculous way that he provides them a child. You have it with Sarah, with Abraham, and then you go on, you find Rebecca, you find Rachel, you find Hannah. In the New Testament, you find Elizabeth. Over and over, God gives in this way. But what I want to highlight this morning is that 2 Kings chapter 4 is actually unique among all of those other accounts. You see, every other time that God provides this miraculous child, 
the gift of that child was essential for God's overall plan of salvation that you find in scriptures. Each of those children grew up to either be part of an important lineage that led to Jesus, or they became a significant leader in a time of crisis for the nation of Israel. For example, Rachel's son Joseph. Without him, you, the family would have died from in the, in the famine. Without Hannah's son Samuel, there would have been no glue to hold Israel together in that time leading up to the, the monarchy. Without Elizabeth's son John the Baptist, there would have been no forerunner for Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Each of them had a significant role, except where? Second Kings chapter 4. This son of the Shunammite woman didn't become a prominent leader. He didn't become an outstanding figure that we all look to. We don't even know his name. He accomplished nothing of note. So why would this story be in there? Why would this be in the scriptures? What's the point? It's simply this. That the true God oftentimes gives good gifts. Not just to fulfill some grand function, but simply to bring about our joy. And that's something to revel in, church family. God does not give gifts just to manipulate us into some kind of action like a, like a carrot, right? He doesn't do that. No, he gives us gifts because we are his creation and he loves us. The Bible says that our God delights in us. Therefore, he gives good gifts. You see, all the false gods around us, whether it's religions or the secular gods, what do they say? They say, only if you work hard enough, only if you strive hard enough, then we will give you something. If you do enough, then you will get a good gift. If you pray hard enough, if you pray five times a day, if you give enough money, then I will give you this gift. But that's not our God. He delights in us. Therefore, he gives us good things. He's like a father. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is speaking with the disciples and he says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, he's a father to us. When I've got three kids... When their birthdays come every year, I don't look at my kids and think about gifts and say, what can I give my kids uh, that can manipulate them? I don't do that, right? I don't say, what can I give my, what gift can I give my kids that that makes them act in a certain way or or helps them to be more functional in life? Brady's birthday's coming up. I didn't get him a vacuum cleaner, okay? We don't do that as fathers. When I'm thinking about my kids, I, I think of a gift that will do what? That will bring joy to their face. That will bring delight. I love to see when my children delight. And the God is the same way with us. 1 Timothy 6 says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Friends, we serve a God who provides good gifts to his children. It is so important that we not be robbed of that point. This morning, if you see God as manipulative... If you see God as stingy, if you see God as, as out to get you, that he's dangling this gift and in some way he's going he's to try to trick you in some way against your good, you do not know the God that is represented in the scriptures. The only one to make God out to be stingy or manipulative is Satan in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That first lie. Our God is a giver of good gifts. I would challenge you this morning 
to look at your life and to think about the good gifts that God has given. Some are relational, some are physical gifts, some are spiritual gifts, but all of those gifts are meant to point you to him as the ultimate giver of good. But there's a sad reality that must be stated alongside that, and that is this. In this fallen world that is full of sin, even the greatest gifts that we have in this life are not untouched by the sting of sin and death, right? Every good gift that we even have in this life is broken in some way. It doesn't last. Our health, relationships, good things, they're all affected by the sting of sin and death. We see that in verse 18. The boy grows up and after many good years together, tragedy hits this family. If you would read with me starting in verse 18. It says, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. Now, headaches would have been very common in this this culture. It was hot. He was outside working. And so the dad thinks he just needs to go inside for a little bit. He can go to his mom, get some rest. He'll be okay. Well, that's not the case. Verse 20. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother... The child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. This morning, I want you to try to imagine the emotion of the mo- that moment for that mom. Imagine that it's your child that you never expected to have, but God had given and you had raised and you loved with all of your heart. It's that child that's on your lap, and there's nothing you can do. They are dead. Once you get there, you'll understand the importance and what's at stake in this passage. You see, the question that is woven into the text is this. What do you do when God's good good gifts are taken away? How do you respond? What do you do when that family member that you love with all of your heart dies? What do you do when that job or maybe that school is no longer an option, that thing that you lived for? What what do you do when your physical strength is taken from you? When your eyesight is taken away from you? When your hearing is not what it used to be? What do you do when your retirement account plummets to the ground? What do you do when that dating relationship is yanked out from under your feet? How do you respond when God's good gifts are taken away? Think if we're honest this morning, many of us do what? We fall apart. We fall apart. We go into depression or we run out and we look for other gifts to grab onto, thinking in some way that can bring us satisfaction. We get bitter. We get angry. We go on a spiral downward. Why? Because while we might not have realized it, our real treasure had all of a sudden become that gift instead of the God who had given that gift. Right? Right? We held on to it with all of our heart. That had become our identity. That had become our true love instead of the God who gave it to us. But I want you to notice that one person in this text responds very differently. Let's read verse 21. It says, And she, talking about the mom, went up and laid on the bed of the man of and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go up to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. 
When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. Again, we're going to stop here for a moment. You would expect out of all the people in this passage, out of all the individuals to fall apart, to break down, to try to numb themselves, you would expect it to be this mom. There was no one that probably loved this gift of God more than this mom. And yet in this passage, she is the one who exhibits the most genuine faith. And friends, this reveals a lesson to each one of us that I think many of you in this room know in your head, but all of us struggle to believe. And that is this. God is worthy of our trust, even when our greatest gifts are taken away. The God represented in this book, the God that we know is worthy of our trust, even when the gifts that he has given us are taken away away. In this text, the Shunammite woman exhibits faith in the midst of most overwhelming of circumstances. If you look at it, it's not the the men in her family, right? It's definitely not the father. In fact, she doesn't even tell the father that her son has died. Did you see that? Why would she do that? Why would she not tell him? Well, I suspect it's because she knows if she tells him that he's died, a father's just going to get in her way. The father's going to despair. He's going to do what many fathers would do. Go to the man of God. What's the point? Our son is dead. He would be despairing. He would get in her way. So she doesn't even tell him. What does she say? All is well. She keeps going to find the man of God. We also see that it's not Gehazi, Elisha's servant. She gets to the man of God. What does Gehazi try to do? He tries to knock her away. He says, you're you're here without an appointment, right? You didn't, you didn't do enough. I'm a personal assistant. I've got to protect Elisha. So he's clearly not the example of faith. And then you have Elisha himself. One of the most interesting aspects of this text is that it seems at every point that Elisha has no idea what he's doing. The man of God doesn't know what to do. Just a side note, but this is just one of those other examples that the Bible actually is true. Did you know that every other ancient text around this same time, when they talked about their heroes, their heroes were perfect. They didn't have flaws. They didn't mess up. But the scripture does not speak about people like that. It shows them with all their flaws. If these stories of Elijah and Elisha were merely legends created by their followers to enhance their fame, as some scholars will claim, then they did a horrible job, right? Because verse 27, what does he say? I have no idea what's happening. And then he goes on to make a number of mistakes. He says, Gehazi, you're faster than we are. Take my staff and lay it on the boy. And what happens? Nothing. Elijah doesn't, Elisha doesn't know what he's doing. 
But all along, what does the woman do? She falls at Elisha's feet. She grabs on and she says, if you do not go with me, I will not leave here. She clings to Elisha. You see, what the Shunammite woman knows that many of us forget when we lose these good gifts that God has given us is this. That when those gifts are gone, the greatest thing that we can do is not to run away from God, not to fight against God, but instead with all of our lives to fall down at his feet and to cling to him. This woman, when she's clinging to Elisha, she's clinging to Elisha because he is God's authorized representative. She knows that he is with God. The presence of God is there. So what does she do? She clings to him. When, she, when he sends Gehazi away, she says, I'm not going. I'm not going without you. You have the presence of God, and I'm clinging to God even when it doesn't make sense. Friends, is this not the essence of faith? One pastor said it this way. He said, faith is not believing without proof. Faith is trusting without reservation. Faith is trusting without reservation. In her life's greatest trial, this Shunammite woman trusted without reservation. And friends, she was not put to shame. We read the end of the story in verse 32. It says, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and he shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and he walked once back and forth in the house. And he went up and he stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. I would imagine a sneeze never sounded so good. Then he summoned Gehazi and he said, call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. You see, this whole passage was leading up to this one pivotal moment. Because you see, what Israel needed to understand more than anything else was the answer to this question. Is there a God that has power over death? Is there truly a God who has power over death? Is there a God who can give life that is unaffected by death? Because if there is, what does it mean that he's actually worthy of our trust and our worship? It's the same question many ask today. Is physical death the one enemy that cannot be overcome? Or is there legitimate hope beyond the grave? And the answer given in this text is an emphatic, absolutely bold, yes. There is a God. There is a God who can turn death to life. This God turns death to life, which means there is no one that is beyond the pull of God's irresistible power. In many ways, this this passage is a preview of sorts. It's a, a preview of what's to come. There's going to be a day where, where Jesus is resurrected once and for all. And then what does he promise? That there's going to be a day where all of those who have submitted their lives to him are also resurrected. Never to be affected by death again. Jesus will return and that will be the sign of the ultimate victory. Death's sting will be no longer. Now is that happening today, right now? No. Romans 8 tells us that we... The whole creation are waiting with eager longing for that moment. But in his grace, the Lord gives his people these previews in scripture to tell us death is not the end. 
There is a God who has power over death. It's kind of like this. Have you ever been on a long road trip? If you've ever traveled, uh, my wife and I have traveled many times from Arkansas to San Francisco. And on that long road trip, you find these billboards that, that announce that some exciting destination is in your future, right? Uh, for instance, maybe you're driving along the highway and you see there a big billboard, world's largest rubber band ball, 500 miles ahead, right? On that billboard, you see a picture of what that ball looks like. It's not the real thing, right? It's a preview. It's a sign that is pointing to a destination and saying, if you keep going in this direction, this is what you're going to find. 500 miles ahead. So you start traveling toward that destination. About 100 miles later, just when you're about to lose interest, right? Just when you're about to to lose focus, there's another one. 400 miles away, the world's largest rubber band ball. And so on it goes until you experience the real thing, right? That happens on a road trip. Well, that's what these passages are like. Unfortunately, when it comes to the world's largest rubber band ball, it doesn't usually live up to the hype. Have you ever gone to one of those things? It's like, this was not worth it. But with the resurrection, it's the entire opposite. Look at 2 Corinthians. It says this, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body, this this body that is affected by sin and disease and death, says must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That is going to be an amazing day. But because we're not there yet, what has God done in his word? He's given us these previews, these passages. These aren't the real thing. This Shunammite boy, he was restored to life, but you know what? He died again. Same thing with Lazarus in the New Testament, the son of the widow in Luke chapter 7. These weren't the real thing, but they were pointing to that day where Jesus would be resurrected once and for all, and then to the ultimate day when we will be with him for eternity. Resurrected bodies. Now the question is, how does Elisha bring this boy from death to life? Where clearly it's not by his own power. He had already sent his staff and was a miserable failure. Remember that? No, instead, in this moment, what does he do? He gets on his hands and his knees and he prays. And then as God fills him with his power, what does he do? He goes and he lays on this dead boy. He puts his hands on his hands, his eyes on his eyes, completely covering this boy. Does so twice. And what does it say? In that moment, through the power of God, God speaks life into this young boy again. Isn't it interesting that what Elisha did physically for this boy... Jesus did symbolically for us to bring about our own spiritual life. Jesus covers us entirely, laying down his life for us on the cross so that when God's just punishment comes down, what does it come down on? Does it come down on us? No. We are completely covered in him. All the punishment for sin, the wrath of God, it comes down not on us who deserve it, but on him who didn't deserve it because he was willing to go to the cross for us. But he didn't only cover us in that way. What does it say? That when he died for us, he also gave us something. He imputed to us his righteousness. Which means this, friends. That if you have submitted your life to Jesus, if you have 
turned to Jesus, you have forgiven of your sins and submitted to him, what does it mean that when he looks at you this morning, you're completely covered? When he looks at you, he doesn't see that person still battling with sin, not all the way perfect. What does he see? He sees Jesus. He's covered you entirely. His righteousness that we didn't deserve covering our lives. What an amazing picture. In that moment, as he takes upon himself our sin and he gives us his righteousness, what does he do? He speaks spiritual life into us. He gives us life that can never be taken away. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Friends, that is the message of 2 Kings chapter 4. God gives good gifts, but ultimately he can be trusted because he provides the one gift that all these other secular gods, all these other religions say they offer, but they cannot come through on. And that is the gift of life, life that cannot be destroyed by death. And this matters, friends. It matters because if we truly believe this, it will enable us to live with total abandonment to God. Total abandonment. Think about this. If this life is not all there is, then we don't have to try to squeeze from it every selfish desire that we ever wanted, do we? Instead, we can live for others. We can live for the kingdom of God. We can look at all the things that we have, our relationships, all these good gifts, and we can say, I'm not an owner of these. I'm a steward for a season. And we can use them all for God. It helps us to live that way. But friends, last, and as we look at the text, it also enables us to trust God unconditionally, no matter what circumstances we face. I want us to close our time together by looking at this woman's tremendous faith just one more time. Did you notice that two times, verse 23 and verse 26, people ask her, is your husband okay? Is the child okay? What does she say? All is well. That not seem odd to you? All is well. Was everything well in her life? No. She didn't answer that question directly, did she? The question was, is your child okay? If she would have said, yes, my child is okay, that would have been a lie. But she doesn't. She says, all is well. You see, I believe this is an incredible picture of faith. When one of her life's greatest treasures is taken away, She's able to look at that situation and she is sad. Don't get me wrong. She has emotions. She is broken over the loss of her son. But she's able to look forward and she's able to look to her God and trust in him. And she's able to say what? All is well. It is well. I've, this morning we started our, the whole service with that song, It Is Well, written by Horatio Spafford. I've told you before that that has a backstory. 1873. Horatio Spafford wrote that song, It Is Well, after his four children had died in a boating accident and they had died in the water. They had all sunk and they had drowned. As he was going back through those same waters where his children had died, he sat down and he wrote the words to that song, It Is Well. When peace like a river attendeth my way. In other words, when I am enjoying those good gifts that God has given, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when those good gifts are taken away, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It didn't occur to me until this week that this passage had to have been where he got that. 
You think about it. What do you do in life's greatest trials? You go to the word of God. And when one of his greatest gifts, his four children, was taken away, no doubt he turned in his Bible. And there he sees another Shunammite woman who had also lost her child. He looks at her and he hears her say those words. All is well. Is my child okay? No, he's dead. But I know I serve a God who can resurrect the dead. I have hope. All is well. I wonder this morning, can you say the same thing? Do you know and trust in this God who has not only gives good gifts in this life, but gives the ultimate gift of life that can never be taken away, who can resurrect the dead? Do you know him this morning? Do you trust in him? I know there are probably some of you in this room that do not have a relationship with that God. And my prayer for you all this week has been that you would know him, that you would know that your spiritually dead life can be made alive because of Jesus, because of what he accomplished on the cross. He took on your sin. He made that available, that relationship with God available. Do you know and trust in him? For those of you that do know him, are you living with abandonment for his kingdom? Are you truly living as if this life is not all there is? Are you able to say no matter what your circumstances are this morning, it is well. Thankfully, God has given us the act of the Lord's Supper. And the act of the Lord's Supper, again, is a reminder, but it's also something that points forward. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done, right? In just a moment, we're going to take that bread and we're going to eat it. And that bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross. Again, the covering that he gave us, his body took the weight of sin and death so that we didn't have to. His body for us. And then we take that cup, which represents his blood, shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be made alive and have eternal life. We remember this morning in the act of communion what Jesus has done. But as we take it together, we also stand together in a moment and we're going to remind ourselves, but also proclaim to the world that because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's going to do in his resurrection, and when he comes back and we're resurrected, we can say as a church family, what? It is well. Praise God we have that opportunity this morning. We're going to close our service by taking Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian here in a moment, we're going to pass out the elements. I would ask that you not partake of those elements. This is for those who have submitted their life to Jesus, an act of remembrance of what Jesus has done and what he's going to do. But I'd instead ask you, just think about this passage that we looked at. Do you know that God? Today, if you don't, we'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to enter into a relationship with God. Come talk to me. Talk to one of our other pastors. Talk to somebody that brought you this morning. We'd love to do that. If you are a Christian this morning, then I'd ask that you spend this time in prayer. Prepare your heart for the taking of communion. Think about the good gifts that God has given you. Think about the ultimate gift that he's given in his cross and his resurrection. Prepare yourself and then we'll come together and we'll take communion all together as a church here in a moment. Use this time for prayer. Examine your heart and we'll take communion together.